I mean, that was super close. It was. <laughs> Do I need to get closer? I think you should. Closer. <laughs> Welcome back to Empower Mississippi's Front Porch Podcast. It's been a couple of weeks. Brett, absence makes the heart grow fonder, or so I'm told, but it's good to be back with you. Uh, after a couple weeks break, yeah. Well, I mean, we got we got a lot going on. It's sort of the the off season, certainly in in the state, uh, with the legislature being away. Um, but they they have been working. Uh, we have a proposal on a medical marijuana bill awaiting uh, a call, a special session from the governor uh, in response to uh, the initiative that passed in 2020 and all the ensuing activity. We had the uh, Charter Authorizing Board vote down every charter application. Um, so we have a lot moving with that federally. Uh, certainly the plans of the President, of the leadership in the House and Senate to spend upwards of $3.5 trillion, um, along with all of the tax implications to go with that we have going on. So we've got a lot going on here nationally. Um, and maybe get some fun discussions in as Ole Miss Partisans. We are cautiously happy right now um, before going to Tuscaloosa, but um, we, we can talk about that. We'll see what Saban has up his sleeve, right? Right, right. And so we, we will um, dive into that. And, and I just hope everyone's having fun with college football. But let's start with, I think, what will certainly be biggest issue and what would be a very interesting special session uh, is medical marijuana is proposal for the state to move forward. Yeah, so the governor has indicated that a special session is on the way. Uh, there seems to be an agreement between both the House and the Senate. Uh, at the time that the court struck down the ballot measure that had passed pretty overwhelmingly, uh, the governor basically said, I'll call a special session when there's agreement between the two chambers. I think they've got that. Uh, by and large, the people that I know that were uh, interested in the medical marijuana proposal as, as an initiative um, view the legislation as being uh, positive legislation and a good move forward. Uh, it's like anything else, the devil's in the details, and I'm sure some, there are some things that, that people could pick at. But I, I think, the to me, sort of the bigger story is that the legislature is being responsive to the fact that whether you like medical marijuana or disagree with medical marijuana, the people of Mississippi pretty overwhelmingly said yeah. that they thought that they should have a medical marijuana program that allows a physician to make a decision about whether or not it's good treatment mm -hmm. for a patient and for that patient Thank to make you. the adult decision whether or not they want to use that, that treatment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think if you look back to say five years ago, like we were nowhere near this point. We had a CBD oil program that was very limited. The person it was named after wasn't even able to receive the treatments. You know, sadly enough, she went on to uh, certainly become the sponsor of the initiative. And so, to your point, I think folks are happy with it. Um, certainly, I'm the, the proponents of medical marijuana. Um, in some ways, it's expanded beyond the ballot initiative in terms of qualifying conditions. Um, there are other, like anything, um, when the legislature gets involved, there, there's tax issues and, and, or excise tax issues involved, uh, some local government uh, issues that I think are, are a fair middle ground. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some questions around local governments opting out sure. as an example and, and what, that, what that means and how it'll end up looking um, in terms of coverage for people who do want access to that kind of treatment. 
You know, there, there's, a, there's a second part of this whole conversation, though. I mean, obviously, uh, medical marijuana drew a lot of attention during the 2020 election cycle. Uh, it drew a lot of attention in the court case that happened afterwards. But, but that court case has far-reaching implications as well, not only on medical marijuana, but essentially it eliminated the initiative process. Uh, it made it mathematically impossible for citizen-led uh, ballot initiatives. Yeah. And so there's this second question about what, if anything, the legislature is going to do to restore the ability of citizens to push for a policy that they might think advantageous where maybe the legislature has drug its heels. Sure, and um, yeah, I mean obviously medical marijuana, if it wasn't for the ballot proposal, we would be back at square one. We wouldn't even be having this discussion, I'm fairly certain. The ballot initiative has not really been a discussion, so medical marijuana has been the front and center of lawmakers sort of in this off-session part. I guess you can view the ballot initiative as not as imminently necessary or, or as timely. Um, in some regards, but I think everyone said we need something again is what it looks like um. Yeah, and the only thing I'd say there is I mean our the ballot process that we had before before the court struck it down Arguably wasn't the right design um, Certainly people availed themselves of that right and I've said in other places I actually disagreed with the court's decision right. uh, to strike the provision down but amending the Constitution with policy is not ideal. The Constitution really should be the structure that defines what government is, kind of what, what its powers are, and not necessarily a place that you dump policy. So you'd support a proposal where it was you're enacting policy via yeah. ballot initiative rather than Right, so I mean, th this even medical marijuana right, is a traditional the, policy. Correct. Um, so doing that by a statutory initiative versus yeah. by a constitutional amendment um, would be the better design if the legislature uh, is going to take that up. I, I agree. And thinking of medical marijuana in terms of if we wanted to add a new qualifying condition to it, right? Or if something, you know, if, if anything changes, as we know, things change, right? It becomes very, much more difficult. That was the policy. That was what was in place. That is what proponents of ballot initiatives or those who looked for ballot initiatives, that's all they had. So if we think back to voter ID and eminent domain, um, th those initiatives that were also successful, I mean, that was what we had. Yep. Switching from that, uh, in, in that policy, we had the Charter Authorizing Board approve zero charters uh, for the upcoming year. Uh, this is the second time in five or six years. Uh, and it's you know, it's sort of like, where are we type thing. Our charter programs, what, five, six, or six, seven, eight years old at this point. It was 2013, the initial bill passed. Uh, you don't want to say it's fledging, you know, cause, uh, it's not in a lot of ways, but um, th there are issues certainly with the board and with getting schools in the state. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's clearly demand for new school options in the state of Mississippi. We've seen that during COVID. We've seen people shift out of core settings. We see parents who are frustrated with curriculum in certain settings who are looking for alternatives. Um, so certainly there's demand from parents and families for lots of options, you know, including traditional public schools, including charter schools, including private schools. You know, and, and this is one of the things that I think gets lost often in this conversation is it's really not about saying one system is better than another system. It's about recognizing that every kid is different and they have their own needs. Uh, and sometimes a different setting makes all the difference in the world. So giving options is important. 
you know, Mississippi has approved charter schools. We do have charters in operation that are making differences in people's lives. I've visited some of those schools. You probably have as well. You've talked to those students. Yeah. You've talked to those the parents. parents. Yeah. You've seen the impact, and it's tremendous. I, I think, you know, where we are from an organization standpoint is we want to see more charter schools. We want to see more micro schools. We want to see more education entrepreneurs who are saying, you know what, I think I can do education slightly differently and appeal to a certain kind of student. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's frustrating uh, to see fewer charters being approved, or in this case, none this year. Yeah. Because uh, every year, it's only one or two. So, I mean, right. this is just one less than what we had the year before, right? So, But the zero just stands out. So, so I think there are three things to consider here. I mean, one is... Should we should we be operating as stringently as we are in preventing new charters from starting? There's certainly a vetting mechanism that the authorizer board plays, uh, and it's an important vetting mechanism. But are we making perfect the enemy of good? One of the real features of a charter school is that if it doesn't do well, it ultimately gets its charter revoked. And so that that is a feature, not a bug. There's real accountability in making sure that they show progress in a way that most schools don't have. Um, so I, I think there's an argument that the threshold that's being created to start is too high when you consider the fact that there's back-end accountability. Um, I, I think the other thing is there certainly are, is room for some legislative improvement uh, to expand where charters can go, uh, to think about the process for by which they are approved. And, and then the third thing I would just say, and it's something that, that we're eminently focused on, which is... How do we make sure that people who are interested in starting schools have the resources they need, have an understanding of the system, have someone that helps them kind of facilitate the process? Um, and so to me, those are the three things that we need to focus on is, you know, what does the threshold look like for approval? Legislatively, have we set ourselves up for success? And in a private sector way, are, is there the right support coming alongside people who want to start schools? And, and all three of those things have to be addressed in my mind. But... It, it, to me, it is unacceptable to have a number of people who want to start a school and not see any of them uh, be able to, to get off the ground. I think, you know, in, we talk a lot about parental accountability and that accountability mechanism that charters or non-traditional public schools have. Um, we like to use the example of Arizona. Obviously, Matt Ladner from Arizona is our fellow on education. He'll talk about this a lot. During a five-year period, I guess it would have been at this point, 2010 to 2015, there were 200 new charter schools opened in Arizona. That's a huge number. Obviously, Arizona is one of the fastest-growing states in the country. It naturally makes sense. I'm sure public schools were overrun um, with new students. You had 200 new schools open. You had 100 schools closed during that same period. And they weren't closed by the state. They were closed by parents. Arizona has a very generous 15-year charter compared to a five in Mississippi. But again, it's the parents have gotten to this level to where it's like, okay, my child is not doing well here, so I can identify that, which we still can do that here, right? But we don't have that other option. In Arizona, it's, well, I've got this other school. I've got this charter school, this charter school. We have open enrollment in Arizona. I can look in this district or that district if they have seats. Uh, so there's a lot of things that, that, you know, get us, that just empower parents in the state of Arizona that we could bring to Mississippi. Yeah, I mean, at some level, if you think about it in the context of, imagine if the town that you lived in only had one banker or one lawyer or one restaurant. Um, 
the, the impetus or the incentive for high performance wouldn't be the same. Now, you introduce into that same environment five lawyers, five bankers, five restaurants, and suddenly people get to decide what their preferences are. They get to decide what they, where they find satisfaction. And I think to some degree that's what you see in Arizona. And it, again, it is a feature that 100 of 200 schools close because it literally means that pa parents decided, I'm going to take ownership over my kids' education and I'm going to vote with my feet yeah. to bring them to the right setting. That's true empowerment. It is, and it's revolutionary thinking in a lot of ways. Like, that is just not a general model parents take to schooling, and, and it's a neat thing. And really, we've seen it with the pandemic, too, with parents empowering themselves in so many ways and what options their child needs because of X, Y, or Z. It doesn't matter, but they sought out that option because they're like, my child needs this. And so that was very neat to see. Well, and I'll just say in closing, uh, there's going to be a lot more coming from Empower in the next few weeks. We've been having some great conversations across the state around education. We think that there's real room uh, to push a forward-facing, um, big agenda to make sure that more kids have access to a quality education with the recognition that our, our real goal here and the vision here is that every single child in the state of Mississippi has access to a quality education. We think it's possible. Not only do we think it's possible, we think it's imperative if the state's gonna move forward the way we want it to. Shifting focus from what's going on in the state, a lot's going on in D.C., um, a lot's written, certainly been written, discussed, um, with, well, there's a lot of different things, but the central thing seems to be $3.5 trillion uh, spending bill, infrastructure bill, um, safety net expansion, whatever you might want to call it, um, comes with all kinds of new taxes, uh, increased taxes. Um, we have, you know, things that you, you've commented on, like AOC's tax the rich dress she wore to a gala that cost about $30,000 to get into, um, although it does go to a good cause, right? So we have a lot, all of this sort of going on in D.C. right now. What are you thinking? What are you seeing as someone who's been and in, worked in D.C., worked on national issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a chaotic environment, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, but, and I'm sure you do, uh, when President Obama first took office and uh, Democrats uh, decided to push through the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, mm -hmm. um, they were willing to take very small majorities and try to do really audacious things. And to some degree, they're doing the same thing now. Um, now, I would say that their majority of their mandate is even it's smaller, smaller. Yeah. than what it was before. But you've got a, a litany of packages out there between the trillion dollars for the infrastructure bill, this $3.5 trillion social safety net revisal, uh, uh, if you will, um, bill, and sort of the contents of it are things that are head-scratching in a lot of ways in the midst of uh, really uncertain economic times uh, where you've got massive inflation going on because all the loose money that's floating around out there uh, out of COVID um, that you're simultaneously having conversations about dramatically raising taxes on the largest employers um, in the country. You're having conversations about raising taxes on um, you know, job creators in our communities. Um, new surcharges on, on taxes, uh, raising capital gains taxes, which, you know, people don't realize this, but the people who are really sophisticated institutional investors, they figure their way out around these sorts of things, right? If they think the market's going to go down, they're going to start shorting the market. 
It's the people with 401ks. Who does that hurt? Yeah. It's the people with 401ks who end up getting hurt by something like a, a jump in the capital gains tax. It, it's not people who are sophisticated enough to hedge, which is largely the wealthy folks that, that supposedly are being targeted. So, I mean, all of this stuff, I think, is, is injurious to the economy if it happens in a pretty profound way. Um, I, I think the bigger sort of philosophical question, though, Brett, is, and you mentioned the tax of the rich stress. I mean, it did... It did trigger me, if you will, yeah. uh, but but I think what people don't realize is that it's a false narrative. Um, and so the Congressional Budget Office does this thing um, once a year that's the distribution of household income. And it's, it's pretty incredible to look at because what they do is they not only look at how much gets taken out of people's paycheck and taxes, but also how many benefits get paid out uh, through government transfers, welfare, okay. that kind of thing. So it's a it's a picture of what income levels look like after taxes and government transfers, which I think is a fair way to do it because it shows the whole picture. What did you pay? What did you get? Right, and which we don't often include. Which you, we don't include. It, well, it's rare. Yeah. Um, but this is an, an interesting tool the Congressional Budget Office, which is nonpartisan, puts out. Yep. The lowest quintile of earners... Um, which the, like the, the bottom, bottom 50. The bottom 20% okay. Okay. Uh, is, so the bottom 20% of earners um, before taxes and transfers had about $22,000 in income a year. After taxes and transfers, that went up over 60% to $37,000 a year. So effectively, their, their tax rate is negative in that they're getting more from the system than what they're paying in by a whole lot. You know, by fifteen thousand plus dollars, the top quintile, which is the top twenty percent of earners, uh, have a reduction after taxes and transfers of about twenty-four percent of their income. Sure. So you're you're talking about a scenario in which the top twenty percent lose twenty-four percent of their income, mm -hmm. and the bottom twenty percent gain over sixty percent of their income after taxes and transfers. But the narrative is that somehow the rich are avoiding sure. paying taxes, and we're not making the oral, the moral argument one way or the other. We're just sort of stating the facts, right? And so when you look at like, I mean, Heritage recently put out in relation to this, and lots of people have done this, right? The top one percent earn twenty-one percent of all income; they pay forty percent of all income taxes. If you get to the top, what would that be? Top ten percent, they earn. 45% of the income pays 70% of taxes. And so, sort of like we know this, it's kind of, we well, we are taxing the rich. Um, why do we see examples of, say, Amazon or of Bezos or whatever, things like that? Or, or um, you know, Warren Buffett would love to use examples of his secretary or whatever. You want to get kind of nerdy? and I mean, I can. I, I think, so. <laughs> in a way, we can understand. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, yeah, I'll try. So I, I would say um, Bezos, as an example, does pay taxes. Um, you know, the question about what Amazon pays in taxes depends on what their business costs are. Um, and lots of factors that go into whether or not they're operating at a profit or not, what they're doing with those profits. But, but Bezos is a great example of this. You look at Bezos and say, as an individual, he's worth over $100 billion. That's a heck of a lot of money. Um, what is he paying in taxes? Well, it depends on what's being done with that money. Most of that wealth is on paper. It's not like he's Scrooge McDuck diving into a bunch of gold coins, right? 
um, that money is invested in stock and primarily in Amazon stock and assuming he's not selling it, 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 it has the advantage of booing not only the company that is Amazon and its you know, hundreds of thousands of employees, but also booing the entire stock market and all of our 401ks. So that if Jeff Bezos were to sell his stock, not only would Amazon suffer dramatically, not only would its employees suffer dramatically, but the entire U.S. economy would suffer in a pretty dramatic way and he would have to sell in order to have a tax liability. Um, and so that's why people say things like that. It's, it's not as if, uh, as if he's sitting on money and not paying taxes. Or cheating on his taxes, right? Cor correct. I mean, correct. You know, he obviously pays, you know, Which, I, don't, I don't want to say how much he pays CPAs, but I mean, it's got to be tens of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, it's... I mean, I think that's probably a gross underestimate <laughs> of what he's paying CPAs, but yeah, he's paying a lot of money. I don't know so it it, it's just, look, at some level, those are anecdotes that are meant to fire people up. Correct. The, the data is overwhelming. People who are high-income earners pay way more than their proportion of income earned into taxes. We have a very progressive tax structure that already has a lot of redistribution and a lot of benefits. And look, as a matter of public policy, some people may look at it and say it's not enough, but it is fundamentally false to say that the wealthy aren't paying their fair share or that the, the poor are shouldering the burden so right. that the wealthy can be wealthy. That's just not a factual statement. Right. It's just getting over that narrative, right? I mean, it's an easy narrative. Well, look, um, envy, is, envy has always been a powerful tool. It's always been a motivator, sure. right? And it's, uh, but it's also a sin, yeah. biblically speaking. <laughs> um, and I would say that this issue cuts both ways, right? I think there's people on the right who sort of have that same mentality, like, yeah, that man's getting ahead. I don't think it's just a AOC type thing, which helps drive the narrative. And so I think it's just sort of where we are with politics, where we are with society today. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, somewhere along the line, it became okay to, it, to want to take from what other people so have earned, earned, right? And it's the, the Thomas Sowell quote, quote um, that it became greedy to want to keep what you've earned and somehow charitable to want to take what somebody else had earned. And, uh, and it's a real problem in the way that people are thinking today. I agree. College Pick'em. I think Gina may have been a pick ahead of me, but she also mans the books, so it's kind of, you know. For, clar little, for clarity, sketchy. Gina is Empower's uh, compliance officer. <laughs> um, so. But not in charge of our, yeah, but, but our compliance does not reach to college football Pick'em. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, we're doing good with that. Um, it's just been a fun season. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's just been fun seeing full stadium, seeing fans say, yeah, I'm going to go to a game. I'm going to well, live my life. And um, For a middle-aged man, this is Christmas is what it really is. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the best time of year by far, um, you know, and there's, there's so much hope going into this weekend. I know we're both Ole Miss fans. But you, you get to the point that you're at a stage like Ole Miss is where they're 3-0, and and you think, hey, what, what if? What if? Yeah. What, what if we could do this? And we're going to Tuscaloosa uh, to face off against arguably the greatest there's ever been yeah. and Nick Saban. Yeah. I love him, love him or hate him. The guy is obviously at the top of his game. 
Alabama gets the best players, uh, you know, recruiting yeah. and, and their transfers. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's going to be one heck of a matchup. I will say this. I have not been this optimistic about our chances, which means we'll lose by 50. But I haven't been this optimistic about our chances since the Chad Kelly era. Um, I think Matt Corral is just playing lights out football. I saw a stat this morning. We're leading the nation in total yards and total points. Yeah. Um, I mean, so offense is, you know, getting a little Las Vegasy. I mean, Corral was, you know, at least a favorite in the Heisman all of a sudden. I mean, it sort of wasn't all of a sudden, but I don't think many people thought, you know, we, we had hopes, but didn't necessarily say, oh, yeah, he's going to be there. Um, obviously, he's performed well. Uh, Vegas, I saw an initial line had Alabama minus 20, now down to. Um, uh, may have been a different line. Ole, or Alabama minus fourteen. So basically, giving Alabama two touchdowns. I didn't, reala- I didn't realize you were such a sports gaming guy. We can show how, how much you got on the how much you got on the game. <laughs> I would not bet on Ole Miss. It's too personal. It's too been there. You know, too much. Already lost enough emotionally on Ole Miss. But um, is college game day there? No, where, where it is. Are they in Athens or Georgia, Arkansas? I think they might be there. Okay. Um, I don't know. Join them. Check it out. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not positive. I know it's not Tuscaloosa, which I was kind of happy about as someone who wants to shy away from attention for his college football team. Um, so, but, yeah, I mean, it's what, it's what we have. It's where we yeah. are. I will say, though, Mississippi does have sports gambling, does not have online sports gambling, so maybe we can talk about that in terms of well, a policy. What, to, what, what to I'll to say is it's, it's going to be jobs. a great weekend of college football. <laughs> Arkansas, it Ar- came out of nowhere yeah. to, prove, oh, yeah. to prove that they're pretty good. Yeah, same thing. To your point about the, the Georgia game. Yep. Um, you know, Mississippi State and, and USM have got to figure some <laughs> things out. Uh, you know, I watched the LSU State game uh, this past weekend. I thought um, – they fought hard. I mean, it was a close game at the end. Yeah. A lot of ways that Leach team reminds me of Matt Luke at Ole Miss. Um, decent between the 20s. Kind of boring to watch, dinking and dunking you down the field. And uh, and just coming up shy in really close games with some big mistakes along the way. So hopefully they can get it together. I think that's right. I think USM's a, a bigger work in progress. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think I've told you both. Got nephews at both schools yeah. playing ball, so uh, Very cool. hope they can pull it through. College football is what it's all about. Um, we good? Yeah, we good? Enjoyed it. I uh, enjoyed it, Russell. We'll talk to you next time. All right.